In the immortal words of Bela Lugosi, I bid you well. To episode 65 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for joining me here on this Monday evening in New York. If you're catching episode 65 on the YouTube channel, haven't done so already, don't forget to click like, subscribe, flip on those notifications. Or if you're getting into episode 65 in the audio formats, like on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms, haven't done so already, and are enjoying the content, of course, don't forget to click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. So my Bella Lugosi intro, episode 65, is going to be about horror films in general, but in particular, vampire movies, hence Bela Lugosi's interpretation of Bram Stoker's Dracula from all the way back in 1931. So I have talked about my film school background in previous podcasts, uh, and my knowledge of movies, because I went to film school, isn't why I know a lot about movies. It's how I have certain uh, segments of my knowledge came directly from sitting in classrooms and whatever the curriculums were, whatever books and reading materials I was uh, responsible for. The three genres that I focused on, we focused on everything. You take that many semesters worth of more film classes than anything else, you're going to cover it all. You're going to hit silent films, silent foreign films, you're going to hit independent cinema, you know, over time around the world. But the genres that I focused on to the greatest extent, overall, somebody says, What's, what are the three genres that you would say you focused on the most? Musicals. I've seen more Fred Astaire movies than you have. Westerns. Everybody loves a good Western, right? And horror films. Those are the three genres. So. I am a huge horror film fan, aficionado, if you like that word, but I'm very particular. I don't like Saw, I don't like any of the Saw movies, don't like any of the Final Destination movies. The first one was eh, the rest of them, flush them down the toilet as far as I'm concerned. Didn't like Hostel. I am not into the torture porn horror subgenre. My knowledge of horror and if you want to say vampire films, start in the silent period and take it through the 1990s and then, generally speaking, not interested. There have been terrific horror films since the end of the 90s, don't get me wrong. Like Conjuring was good, but I'm very, I'm very particular and I don't like hostage situations, people being tortured, body parts getting cut off just for the sake of what we call fetishistic scopophilia, the erotic pleasure gained in looking, in some cases, looking at people suffering. No. So what I'm gonna talk about are vampire films in particular over the decades. And I, my little disclaimer, I have not seen The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which from what I understand looks terrific. Um, it is based on a chapter in Bram Stoker's original novel, Dracula, from 1897. Funny that I remember the year. But I go all the way back with vampire movies, and by that I mean I studied them 
as part of two classes I took. Nothing to do with outside reading. I read about the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula. Uh, when I say Bella, Bella was the star. Uh, and it was directed by a guy named Todd Browning, who arguably, his best film was after Dracula. He did a movie called Freaks, which is still fucked up. Um, but I learned about, in a course called Silent Screen, a film that I had seen parts of and had gotten kind of traumatized by. A movie from 1921 or 22, depending on which publication or which click you do on the internet, which is being remade by Robert Eggers as we speak. Um, the actor who was in it, is it uh, Alexander Sarsgaard? Bill Sarsgaard, I, I always get mixed up. I, I apologize, Alex. It's Bill Sarsgaard, the guy that was, um, he played uh, Pennywise in it, and then he was really good in Barbarian. Um, let me just double check. Yeah, Bill Sarsgaard, I don't know why I said Alexander. Uh, but, so he's playing Nosferatu in the Bill Eggers remake, and Willem Dafoe, who played a variation on Nosferatu in the movie Shadow of the Vampire, he was kind of playing the actor who played, it's, it's very complicated, I don't want to get bogged down here, but I watched 1921 or 22 Nosferatu when I was very small, and the actor who plays the vampire in that film who Willem Dafoe was supposed to be playing, the actor in Shadow of the Vampire, it's a little bit fucked up, that's who Bill Skarsgård is playing in the new Nosferatu, and Willem Dafoe is in the movie, but I think he's playing, uh, he's playing the doctor, I forgot the character's name. Max Schreck was a very unusual looking man with a background that nobody knows. Like nobody knew where he came from, where he went, hence why the movie Shadow of the Vampire kind of posits that he actually was a vampire in real life, which, okay, now, now you're really getting creepy on. But he was such a frightening, the imagery of, his name was Orlock in the film, uh, Captain Orlock. He wasn't known as Count Dracula, Count Orlock. Uh, he was, I was about five years old when it was on, I think it was on public television. Naughty, naughty. The same channel that had Sesame Street, 321 Contact Electric Company. I'm in fucking kindergarten and I'm getting scarred for life. Well, not for life, but I was having nightmares about that. Go ahead, Google 1921, 1922 Nosferatu, F.W. Murnau. It's, it's available all across streaming platforms. You can find it for free almost everywhere from two beyond down. He is horrifying to look at. You know, it's, it's as in Last Voyage of the Demeter, when they, they, the vampire, when he's vamped out, does not look like a normal person. Like, it's not an attractive man. There's nothing sexy or romantic. It's not Robert Pattinson seducing Kristen Stewart. Or even Stephen Dorff ripping people's heads off in Blade in 1998. It is a great movie, though. So that's the thing. I had no business watching it when I was five, but when I rewatched it, in silent screen, almost three decades ago, 1994, holy fuck, I was floored by how good the film is, silent film, how artful, how beautiful the imagery is. And you get a sense of what Germany was like in the post-World War I era. Not good, not good. So that was 
the first vampire film that I was exposed to in any form. And I was interested in film even as a kid, and I did reading about different genres, just the books that happened to have at the local library, even the school library, good old Fairfield Elementary on Route 107 in Massapequa, or just off Route 107 in Massapequa. Uh, I did a lot of reading, but you know, you're a, a Generation X or a child in 1980 interested in a horror film. It's not like today, where a couple of clicks on your metal, uh, your metal device, aka your phone, uh, you can pretty much see clips from anything you want. You may not be able to stream an entire film at click of several buttons, but you can watch clips, you can get an idea. Couldn't do that. You had to seek it out. You had to ask people, hey, is this on any channels? Is there any way I can see this movie? So Nosferatu, first vampire film that I had any experience with. Irony is, I didn't actually see Todd Browning's 1931. It's Bela Lugosi generally regarded to be the most famous cinematic incarnation of Dracula, generally speaking, to this day. Lugosi was uh, Hungarian, and his English was not so good. Uh, he understood it, he kind of almost understood it better than he spoke it, but he kind of learned phonetically in a lot of ways, sort of like how Jackie Chan, some of the weird clubs uh, that he made in the first rush hour because I don't think he understood exactly what he was saying, so he was saying shit that didn't really make sense. Lugosi was known for blowing lines, not because he didn't have them memorized, but because they didn't make sense. He didn't know that he was screwing up or that he was saying, well, that's not even a word. The original 1931 Dracula, which I don't think is streaming free anywhere, but you, could, you might be able to find it on YouTube, possibly in a truncated format. It is a movie, and this is unusual, the reputation is better than the reality. It's not that good of a movie, if you're actually going to be objective about it. Yes, it was groundbreaking, and audiences of the day supposedly were horrified. The opening, Renfield, Parker, Lucy, Mina, and Lugosi's incredible performance. Lugosi is the best thing in that film. He's fucking boss. But after an arresting opening, which we've seen similar layouts in a lot of different you know, vampire movies and Dracula, even Francis Coppola with, with Keanu in the early 90s, the movie has an incredible first like 15 minutes, some beautiful glass shots, matte paintings, uh, landscape, which almost looked kind of real, but we know this is done in studio. You know, like I'm the, I'm the guy that knows, no, 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 that was shot in the studio. That's a process shot. That's a traveling matte. The movie is not that good. It kind of meanders along after the like great first 20 minutes, and the ending is okay, but there's a lot of stuff that you know they wouldn't do now. A lot of important action happens off screen. And I don't mean in a Reservoir Dogs way where we never get to see the jewel robbery itself, but like Van Helsing is confronting Dracula, and you have characters are commenting on it. It's like, where the fuck are they? Let's see the fight. What the hell are we doing here? One classic, mega-classic, in this particular subgenre of horror, the vampire film, which I did see in film school, is a film that was made after uh, the Todd Browning, Bela Lugosi, Dracula, and it's a ger another German film, as was Nosferatu, but 10 years later, 1932, a phenomenal, all-time great filmmaker, Carl Theodore Dreyer, or just Carl Dreyer, 
And the movie is called Vampire. And it is not a silent film, but much in the way that some of Charlie Chaplin's efforts in the first part of the 1930s with after the coming of sound. It's not a silent film, but it functions as if it were a silent film. The Vampire is not an out there, exciting, you know, we gotta stop the count. It's not that sort of movie. It's again, it's moody, it's melancholy, it's meditative. It's giving you an idea of what life probably would have been like, even though it's not exactly set, you know, in Germany at this time. The movie is layered and it is beautifully shot and lensed. And it's not terrifying in the conventional sense, but it is the sort of film that sends a shiver down your spine, which really is what horror is all about. In general, vampire movies are not scary in and of themselves. And I've always felt the same way about The Mummy and, you know, Frankenstein. Of course, Boris Karloff, hands down the greatest star in the history of the horror genre, Boris Karloff. And, you know, he and Lugosi had this kind of back and forth. Karloff adored Lugosi, but if we go by Tim Burton's fantastic film, now almost three decades old, Johnny Depp as the terrible... Worst filmmaker in Hollywood history, Edward D. Wood Jr., or Ed Wood, if you prefer. If we go by the telling of the story of Bela Lugosi in that movie, as played by Martin Landau in an Oscar-winning Best Supporting Actor performance as Lugosi, couldn't stand Karloff. He was jealous. Karloff had the career that Bela wanted. Yeah, what are you going to do? Karloff had the voice, the accent. Boris Karloff was fucking awesome and he was still working in, into his 80s. One of my favorite films ever, with Boris Karloff, not a horror movie. He plays a horror movie star at the end of his career who actually has to disarm a sniper who's killing people randomly. It's a film called Targets, 1968, Peter Bogdanovich, who is in the movie he directed. Amazing, phenomenal film. If you're looking for a recommendation of horror, but not that kind of horror, Targets. But... I recently saw who I think is the best actor who made a memorable Count Dracula, Sir Christopher Lee, the late, great Sir Christopher Lee, who lived into his, um, I think he was about 93 when he passed. Was he 93? No, uh, he may have been. I think Christopher Lee was born in 1922, and I want to say he passed in 2015. So there you go. Uh, Christopher Lee made a lot of horror films with Peter Cushing, who, if you're a Star Wars fan, Grant Moff Tarkin in OG 1977 Star Wars, Peter Cushing. He played Dr. Van Helsing in a fantastic, I just saw it about a month ago, I don't think it's free on streaming anymore, it just happened to be streaming on HBO Max. Oh, I forgot. Vampire is free on HBO Max right now, or Max. If you have it, you don't have to pay for it. And it's on a, a number of other streamers for free. So you can watch Nosferatu, you can just even clips every couple of minutes. And you can watch Carl Dreyer's 1932 near silent but not silent classic Vampire. But I had never seen Horror of Dracula in full, only clips in another NYU class called The Horror Film. Christopher Lee is very uh, sort of patrician, very uh, worldly, well-off looking actor. He looked like a guy who was royalty, who came from money. And he didn't play, there's no romanticism, at least in Horror of Dracula, to Christopher Lee's performance. He's all feral, 
he's all rage, almost like he's angry that he is this way and he is going to make you this way or just kill you before you turn bully. Like he's a vicious and angry Count Dracula. And the movie doesn't develop the way that you think it's going to. If you read the description, it seems like you're going to get a different movie than you get. And I actually like that, that the movie did not go the way that was expected. And one other interesting thing with Horror of Dracula, other than Sir Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing in the, in the main roles, is, I don't remember the name of the character, but the actor who was the first iteration of um, Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman movies, the actor's name is Michael Guff. Michael Guff, very young, 1958, has a key supporting role as the brother of, I want to say, the character that is either Lucy or Mina. They didn't exactly do the names exact, or as they had done in some of the other movies or in Bram Stoker's original story. And I didn't know that he was in this movie, and I kept saying, I, I recognize this guy, I know this guy. And he said, holy shit, that's Alfred from, you know, Michael Keaton Batman era. That's amazing. Even someone like me, with the sort of weird and obscure movie trivia stored in my head, even I get slapped upside the head by, Wow, I didn't know he was in this. Holy crap, he looks like a kid. It happens. If I were asked the question, though, what's my favorite vampire movie? You know, John Carpenter did a terrific vampire film near the end of the 90s, uh, just called John Carpenter's Vampires. And it was based on a book of the same title. And very unusual casting. The future, well, not future, a decade earlier, Terry Silver in Karate Kid Part 3. Use the crank, Danny boy! One of the great lines in the history of cinema. Thomas Ian Griffith, the actor, as Terry Silver, screaming at Daniel LaRusso, a kid, screaming at him at the top of his lungs. Use the crane, Danny boy. Thomas Ian Griffith plays the head of a pack of vampires in John Carpenter's Vampires. And the good guy in that movie is played by James Woods, who played more dastardly villains than good guys. He's not and never has been, although he, he did have an A-list period in Hollywood, which I've talked about in a previous podcast. Quentin Tarantino wrote the part of Mr. Orange and Reservoir Dogs for James Woods. They couldn't get him the script because nobody knew Tarantino from a hole in the wall. And Harvey Keitel, who was trying to help set up the project, his career was temporarily in a shitter. So enter Tim Roth. No James Woods in Reservoir Dogs. But John Carpenter's Vampires, very solid vampire movie with James Woods as a vampire hunter and a real nasty, badass vampire hunter. Um, that's not my favorite vampire movie, though. And it's weird. In the 90s, there were a number of interpretations of vampire movies. There was, uh, hell, even Mel Brooks with Leslie Nielsen. He did the kind of spoof version, uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Eh. There was a movie with Christopher Walken, I believe, and Lily Taylor called The Addiction. Pretty good. There was another vampire film, a foreign film called Nadja, also pretty good. Doing different things. And when I say doing different things, meaning it's a vampire movie, but it's not about Count Dracula. It's about just vampires living, trying to live their best life. And yeah, Wesley Snipes, the first MCU, if we want to get technical, 1998. Wesley is a vampire hunter who is half vampire. What a great concept. Great movie. Doesn't, nothing 
kind of fulfills the unbelievable promise of the opening sequence, which is a rave scene. One of the great top 10 best action sequences in the history of cinema. If you're asking me, the so-called film expert, I want to put a little star next to it, like the podcast, a little star. No, I'm going to say I am. I have the, I have the, uh, I have the degree that says that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. The opening rave sequence in Blade is extraordinary, where Wesley just walks into a situation with, I don't even know, maybe there's a hundred bloodthirsty vampires about to take all the blood from this poor schmuck who thinks he's going to get laid. Wait, where have we heard that one before? And it's Tracy Lords, the unfortunate former underage porn star, Tracy Lords, terrific in a dramatic role, as she was good in a lot of movies of that decade. Uh, Wesley just comes in and fucking tears them all up. He just cleans them up. 1987 saw the release of two major vampire films. One by Catherine Bigelow, who, um, terrific filmmaker. She did the original Point Break. Um, and she did the movie in 2013, which was much uh, lauded. I don't want to get the name wrong, because believe it or not, I never actually saw it. Um, Catherine Bigelow also did a film in 1995, which got a huge buildup with great fines who was coming off Schindler's List and Quiz Show, and it was called Strange Days. And um, it wasn't that good. Angela Bassett was in it, Juliette Lewis. It should have been good, but it, it just didn't quite get there. It was set in the near future, but it was The Hurt Locker. I know I was gonna get it wrong. I didn't want to take a guess. Uh, that was directed by Catherine Bigelow. Very, very difficult movie. I only saw clips. I'm just like, you know what? I'm not, I don't really don't want to watch this, uh, trying to, you know, diffuse shit. I remember in the English patient, just little bits and pieces of seeing the character, the sapper, trying to diffuse. I'm like, this is not, this is not for me. I, I really don't want anything to do with this. But Catherine Bigelow did a vampire film uh, with Bill Paxton, among others, called Near Dark in 87, which was not a big hit, but it's gritty, and it, again, doesn't go the way you expect. It doesn't follow the typical conventions of, of vampire movies. Highly recommend Near Dark. But my favorite vampire film, and I'm going to be cliche here, and I'm not going to apologize for it, because I guarantee you a significant percentage of Gen Xers are going to say that Joel Schumacher, 1987, The Lost Boys, with an incredible all-star cast headed by Diane Weist, who was just, she was actually about to win an Oscar while they were filming it for the previous year, the Woody Allen film, Hannah and Her Sisters. But Lost Boys with young Keeper Sutherland, Jason Patrick, the late Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, Edward Herman, Bernard Herman, not Bernard Herman, Bernard, Barnard Hughes, excuse me, Alex Winter, future half of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with Keanu. It's just a great vampire movie, which almost straddles the line between romanticism and just pure outright brutality. And it does that better than any other vampire film. And what I mean is, there's not really any romanticism to the Keeper Sutherland character, who seems you know, he's like the leader of this gang of what we think are unruly kids. You know, could be college age. They're actually probably two, three hundred years old, as far as we know. It has moments of humor. It has moments of legitimate horror and terror and fright-raising moments. But it all works. And the performances are so good. The movie is magnificently lensed 
the cinematographer Michael Chapman, a fantastic, I believe, multiple Oscar-nominated, you know, lenser, a great guy behind the camera. And Joel Schumacher has made a lot of movies that I didn't love, despite the fact it's a huge, uh, may rest in peace, but an enormous talent. You know, he did Falling Down, a film that many people would consider his best. Not a fan. I feel like it falls apart in the second half. The Lost Boys, everything works. He gets everything right, right down to the character of the grandfather, who I still, to this day, I'm like, get this fucking guy. Like, I didn't even, I still don't know for 100% sure. He always knew. I guess he did. Didn't. You know. And one of the best lines ever. You know the rule about filling up the car with gas when you take it without asking? No, Grandpa? Well, now you do. The Lost Boys is ostensibly a bit of a spin on Peter Pan, hence why it's called The Lost Boys, that there's a little bit of the Peter Pan aspect. There really isn't. It's a straightforward horror movie. It's not a coming-of-age story, unless you really have to kind of stretch to call that a coming-of-age story. It's just a straightforward horror film, vampire film, and it uses certain genre trope expectations, like inviting the vampire into your home and, and that sort of thing. And it works with the, the concept of who's the head vampire and all of this sort of shit. Uh, but it is an incredible entertainment. I would estimate, because normally horror movies to me you can't watch again and again, or at least not soon. Like I've seen the original Candyman probably at least eight times start to finish, but that's not a film that I could just fire up at any time. Whereas The Lost Boys, absolutely, absolutely, you know, and it, it is, as I, I'm looking over here, you can find it on streaming. I don't know that it's free on any non-ad supported platform, uh, but you get it for a dollar or two you know, on Amazon Prime. Everybody seems to have a different setup with either Prime or Apple, where something like a movie for me might be a dollar, but for someone else it might be three dollars. I have no idea how that works. But if you've never seen The Lost Boys, it's absolutely worth it. You'll laugh. You won't believe the, the sort of beauty and just how good the movie looks and how attractive the characters are, the actors and actresses in the various roles. You know, Jamie Gertz, gorgeous. Ten years, uh, ten years, nine years later in Twister, she's hilarious. But her character is kind of shrouded in mystery in The Lost Boys. And that works. Almost everything in the movie works. Now, I should also point out that one of my other favorite horror films was from the decade of the 80s as well, and that is the movie called Fright Night. Fright Night is not funny. It is straightforward, scary, horrifying, and a lot of old-school practical special effects. There's a little bit of CGI, it's a little bit, but a lot of the effects work in the film, the costuming, the makeup work, really, really top-level top stuff. And a great old actor who I adore, Roddy McDowell, one last great performance. I mean, he was a child actor in How Green Was My Valley, 1941. That's a controversial film for a totally different reason. That's the movie that stole the Best Picture Award from Citizen Kane. No offense to John Ford. No offense to Roddy McDowell, but Citizen Kane was the best film of any year that it would have been released. But yeah, Fright Night follows the format of a kid suspects his neighbor is a vampire, and if he were wrong, you wouldn't have a movie. Of course he's right. 
and then he has to pretty much go to work recruiting Roddy McDowell, who is a vampire hunter on TV, but he ain't, he doesn't really believe in vampires. And then the story kind of goes from there. And Susan Sarandon's brother, Chris Sarandon, is phenomenal as Jerry Dandridge. And if this all sounds familiar, you're saying, I don't think I saw this, but I saw something. Colin Farrell uh, and Anton Yelchin and, um, who was the actress? Think. I get a little bit hypoxic because I speak so fast. But it was the actress from um, Sixth Sense. And let's see. Yeah, actually, in two, I thought it was 2012. It's 2011. And Colin Farrell is absolutely incredible in this movie. It's the same character, Jerry Dandridge. And, um, yeah, Tony Collette. Uh, and it, it uses a lot of the same names, Brewster, Mrs. Brewster. Brewster's just a good name. But Tony Collette is the kind of actress who keeps things grounded. And the 2011 version of Bright Night is very good, but it can't hold a candle to the original. Colin Farrell's fucking master. He's an absolute wizard of an actor. Love the guy. But the movie is just not as good as the original. Even though, <laughs> I don't want to give it away, but he comes up with a solution for the nobody's going to invite nobody's going to invite me into the house. Like if, if the only way to get at somebody is if they invite you into the house, what would you do? What if you destroyed the house? Do you still need permission to go into a house if you if there's no house? Fucking great, love the guy. So let me know in the comments what some of your favorite vampire films are. Um, you know, there, there's certainly so many that I didn't cover. And as I say, Bela Lugosi made a bunch of vampire films in the 30s, even into the 40s. Christopher Lee played Dracula so many different times. There's the William Marshall film in the early 70s. Um, um, I've never seen Salem's Lot. I know there's a new one, and Stephen King says that he's seen it and he's excited about it. Uh, it was supposed to go to theaters, but it's going to go straight to it's going to go straight to Max, but they haven't announced a release date. It's so weird when a movie is wrapped and completed, the hesitation, looking for, a, I guess, a slot where, the fuck knows. But Salem's Lot miniseries, my sister is a huge fan of, of Stephen King's book, which is a long book. She couldn't get into the miniseries. She actually watched it about a year ago. We were shocked to find that it was available uh, to rent through Amazon Prime. It's about four hours. It was a big deal miniseries, as was the 1990 version of It starring Tim Curry, uh, miniseries, which some people actually prefer to the, to the Skarsgård version from a number of years ago in the sequel. You know, n neither here nor there. But uh, there have been a lot of vampire films. It's not a genre that's easy to do right. And you think in terms of TV, the old Dark Shadows, which I love from the 60s and 70s, the TV series. Then there was the movie, the Tim Burton film with Johnny Depp, where they got some of the actors from the original Dark Shadows, like, you know, the Chris Pennock, had a, a cameo, Jonathan Frid, and um, that movie just was not good. It's a genre that everyone likes. I shouldn't say everyone. Almost, almost everybody likes, and Hollywood continues to go to the well, but not that many Dracula movies or vampire movies have been monster hits. I believe Last Voyage of the Demeter turned a profit, and I'm not 100% on that, but it's tough. Now, I do know that the Robert Eggers, Nosferatu, his spin on the 1921-22 Nosferatu by Murnau. When he's talked about 
the impact of that film on him as a young filmmaker. Like that's his movie. He's always imagined making this kind of film and now he has his shot. Because there's so much time to build buzz, I do believe that that, I don't want to say too much as far as making broad statements, but I believe that film will be a hit and I believe it will be an Oscars contender because of the pedigree. This guy really knows what he's doing, Robert Eggers. Really, really uh, on top of it. And if anybody can make an Oscars-worthy vampire film, he's the guy. You know, this is the guy. He's the guy. Or as Tom, Tom Cruise, night and day, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. No, he's the guy. And it's the right cast. Because Bill Skarsgård is an, uh, you know, it's kind of a distinctive-looking actor. Willem Dafoe, we all know everybody thinks he's crazy just because he's such a, an unusual, you know, very striking, the cheekbones and everything and, and the crazy eyes. Oh, by the way, that meme of Willem Dafoe with the crazy eyes is from Speed 2 Cruise Control, 1997. Bomb. A box office bomb. Hey, you want to talk about an unworthy, unwelcome, lousy sequel that was just a cash grab? Speed 2 Cruise Control. And Jason Patrick, who was in The Lost Boys, my favorite vampire film. He starred in it. Keanu bowed out. Smart move, Keanu. I love you. Uh, and I love Sandra Bullock, too. Shouldn't be equal opportunity hater here. Uh, the Speed 2 Cruise Control script, was it was not good. Like, on the page, the fact that they didn't know that it wasn't going to work. But what I loved was Jason Patrick, terrific actor, Royal pedigree, you know, his uh, grandpa was Jackie Gleason, right? Jason Patrick actually said in the press tour for Speed 2 Cruise Control, I only did this because it's not a cash grab type of a sequel. I really like the way they advanced the story. Did he really believe that? Was he just like, because you never know with actors when you read something, he may have just been fucking around and saying, and saying that, like, in a wink-wink kind of way, we all know what this is, I don't know. But I just remember that quote, and I was like, hey, maybe this will be terrific. And then it hits theaters, one star, one star, one star, one star. Didn't work. But I have also, I mean, it was my first Keeper Sutherland film was The Lost Boys. And then I saw Stand By Me, Keeper Sutherland fan for life. He is so good in The Lost Boys as David. You know, you almost you want to like him, because Sutherland is so charismatic. He has that, that innate charisma. I would say he's even more charismatic than his dad. I mean, Donald, you want to argue who's had the better career? I guess it's Donald. You know, the, the man that my dad used to get mistaken for all the time, Donald Sutherland. One quick story about that before I close this episode. My dad looked so much like Donald Sutherland that um, one time a bunch of people were over the house in Huntington many years ago in the movie Space Cowboys which is Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, James Garner, and Donald Sutherland as four kind of old fogies, former astronauts that got shafted when NASA ended up using their own people and not uh, like Air Force flyers, which were the guys that uh, Clint Eastwood and his group of, of pals were. They all have to go up into space. And the movie is on, and somebody says to my dad, say, oh, Space Cowboys, you like this movie? And my dad looks at me and he says, yeah. And he points at Donald Sutherland and goes, this is one of my best performances. It was one of his best performances. But one of Kiefer Sutherland's best performances without question is as David in The Lost Boys. Not a sympathetic character, but you just get enough hints that maybe he wasn't like this before he became a vampire. Maybe there was a little bit, and maybe there is even a little bit of humanity still left. Some of the things that he says towards the end of the movie. 
He's not just a thoughtless killing machine, as are some vampires in other vampire movies. And with that, the vampire movie episode. We have reached the end of episode 65 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you for joining me on this Monday in New York for this creepy episode. And I certainly hope I've given you some ideas for horror films, vampire movies that you might want to give a shot, even just to check out clips, because maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe these movies are all terrible, right? It's possible. A lot of this is just opinion. But if you checked out episode 65 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already, don't forget to click like, subscribe, turn on the notifications. Or if you're listening to the episode in one of the audio platforms, like Spotify, iTunes, haven't done so already, and you enjoyed episode 65, click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 66 real, real soon. Take care. Peace.